Okay, so we're here today with Zane Hack of Extinction Rebellion and oh, Save All Growth. And we're talking about his, his activism and what's going to happen to him next week. Hi, Zane. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, it's just been very yeah, difficult dealing with like all the stuff going on with Save All Growth and other stuff, but that's good too. Okay, so what's going on right now? Well, we're in. We're just ended the first iteration where we had around 54 arrests in Victoria and Nanaimo, Vancouver, and now we're sort of entering into uh, the second phase, which is we plan on getting 200 people on the road in late March to get arrested. Okay, so where were you two years ago? Well, two years ago is roughly exactly when I came here. Okay, from? Uh, from Pakistan. In, I was born in Karachi which is the main sort of port city of the country. It's like around 20 million people who live there. And I feel like, yeah, a lot of what I saw growing up really shaped how I see like the mobilization process. Okay, for example, what did you see? Well, for example, uh, like a year before, two years before, before I came to Vancouver, I saw this uh, campaign, which I didn't really agree with the politics of, but, but, the tactics were that a bunch of people, thousands of people, went down to the capital and they basically sat down on the main road that went into the the capital buildings and they went they just sat there and like slept there for weeks. And it changed the whole country for Why? Why did they sit there? Well, it was for many it was what I call looking back at it, it was fake populism and the politics of the people who were involved in that were quite right wing ultimately. But it was very successful in mobilizing large numbers of people who were really fed up of the corruption and the, uh, yeah, just mainly people who were, it was mainly anti-corruption, even though the people who ended up coming in power as a result of that weren't really that good. Right. But again, like, it's all about the mechanics of civil resistance, which is that thousands of people went down to the capital and it changed the whole national conversation. Right. Okay. So why did you come to Canada? Well, initially I went to Toronto for a while uh, because my uncle and my cousins lived there. So it's the first place I thought of going to because I lived in Karachi all my life and I felt like I, yeah, it's a city where it's like 20 million people and it's very difficult to get stuff done. And I just thought I needed to go to Toronto, but I didn't like Toronto either. So I, I just, yeah, I just decided to come to Vancouver just by chance. Were you concerned about climate before you came? When did that start for you? It's definitely something I thought about a lot, but I never really had a real reason to engage with it until I was at SFU and I heard a few people talk about this bridge occupation that was happening. And uh, and I re read up, I looked up an article about it and I learned, for the, the first time I learned about Extinction Rebellion. And so I went to Burrard Bridge and there were hundreds of people there. And it was really, really a powerful environment. And that was very powerful because it was the first time that in climate change wasn't talked about as like this thing to do with like polar bears and the Arctic. It was like this thing on that people were talking about on the streets and getting arrested over. And it was very powerful to watch because then it was like, it's almost like a populist issue now. It's not like this, I don't know, it's not like a university campaign. It's like, it's the end of civilization. And so as I've tried to get involved right after so climate change must be hitting Pakistan a lot harder. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I mean, every year that goes by, farming gets more and more difficult. Uh, three years before I came to Vancouver, there were uh, thousands of people died within a few weeks uh, because of a really bad heat wave, 
where temperatures went over 50 degrees and it's really, really hot and most people can't afford air conditioning as well. Uh, so it's like at the time, that's the first time I heard about how dire the situation was and still no one really was talking about climate change, even though I knew why it was happening. And also we, everyone in the country knows about farmers who kill themselves in large numbers every year because farming just keeps getting more and more unsustainable as each year goes by. Do you want to talk about the IPCC report? Yeah, well, it's just, I remember what Claire Farrell recently said, who's one of the people who co-founded XR, is that we've gotten really good at measuring the crisis and we don't really do anything about it. So like the IPCC reports to me are just like, you're watching a house on fire and you're just trying to measure how hot the fire is and how far it's spreading instead of just doing something about it, which is what we should be doing. Tell us about your first arrest. My, my first arrest was for something I had done a week before I was arrested. So uh, I was like, I was, I was like most people who come here on a study permit or different types of sort of visas. I was under the, I had made up my mind that I would not get arrested. But because nothing was happening at the time of the Extinction Rebellion, I decided that something we needed to do something. So I and a few others decided to do railway blockades to protest uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And we knew at the time that there was an injunction on the railway tracks, but we didn't really know what the practical consequences were. So we organized three railway blockades very, very close to each other. And uh, one of those days, well, after one of those actions, I was at a at this sort of block indigenous-led blockade at the overpass into Crab Park, and it had to do with an issue at Crab Park. Uh, and uh, I was to the sidewalk, and I was asked to record the whole thing. And then a CN police officer approached me and asked me to like come over to the side because <laughs> he wanted to talk to me. I don't know how they found out I was there, but he told me I was under arrest. And then he took me to the car and just just put me in the car for an hour and then made me sign a few pieces of paper uh, for my undertaking. And that, that was it, and then I just went home. Uh, so that was interesting because I had a lot of confusion about what arrest looked like and all that, but that was a very straightforward process where he wasn't completely nice, but he also wasn't like, it was clear that he didn't have a personal agenda, but he also wasn't, he wasn't overly nice. So it was like, huh, this is interesting. It's like very straightforward, it's just paperwork. <laughs> And so it's like that completely changed my attitude towards civil disobedience. And then I got arrested in March, so just a few months later, on Camby Street Bridge. One of the very few times we've been able to actually get on the center of Camby Street Bridge. And this was when the injunction for Ferry Creek was first granted. We decided to have an action that day, and 200 people turned up, even though 30 people had said they were going on Facebook, which was very surprising. And then we walked on to Camby Bridge. The police didn't stop anyone. We were there for three hours in the middle of it. And at the end of it, six of us were arrested. So that was my second time. And then ever since then, I just, yeah, I just don't remember some of my arrests. Okay, so now it's time to pay, sort of. So what's going on this week? Tell us about this week. Yeah, so um, on the 15th, I'm showing up in court with two other men. Uh, a day after, three women will be sent off to prison to uh, basically answer for breaking the Trans Mountain Injunction. And the Crown's sentencing recommendation is 14 days in prison for me. And uh, for what, two other people, it's uh, 30 days. For one other person, it's 30 days, and who's a prof, actually, at SFU. Uh, and for the other person who's going to prison with me, it's 14 days. 
Okay, so we've got a student, we've got a professor. What does the other person do? Uh, yeah, I think they're uh, an elder person. Okay, so we've got a student, a professor, and an elder all going to jail. So can you tell me then, okay, how many hours do you think that you have spent in total blocking infrastructure? I think it would be roughly like 50 hours. Okay, so put that up against the week's worth of protests that are going on across Canada that are blocking you know, numerous borders. And I think there may have been a couple of arrests for violent behavior, but certainly not arrests for just simply blocking infrastructure. So I'm wondering what the differences you see between the protests that are going on now and the environmental protests that have been going on. I mean, we're seeing highly educated professionals going to jail for blocking infrastructure and, and they're just it just seems to be such a contrast. What do you have to say about that? Well, I think that's probably because we're objectively right and we're a greater threat to the system. So it's like, I think, I think governments have very little to fear ultimately. Maybe, maybe not, but like, I would think that they have less to fear from someone like people like the Freedom Convoy because most of society knows they're wrong. Like, they have a strong base of support, but like, an overwhelming majority, I would think, are not on their side. They're probably supported by a very small percent of the population. We, on the other hand, do have popular, we represent popular will. Even if people don't like our tactics, we represent popular will, and that's a greater threat to the government because even if we're being transgressive, historically, it only takes a certain amount of time before the public flips completely. It's a bit like therapy, when uh, therapists have to build up a certain amount of hostility towards them. And then the person goes like, I don't have a problem, I don't have a problem, I don't have a problem, all right, fine, I've got a problem. So that's how it is with climate change, where the whole public knows we're right, and even when we're being disruptive, it's like even if the public hates us, we know that ultimately they'll flip because we are objectively right, like the civil rights movement was right, like the suffragettes were right. And with the Freedom Convoy, it's a bit like if they, if they go too far, the public will come out and like really make clear with their opposition. And the public will win because, you know, they have the moral support and the Freedom Convoy probably doesn't. Okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit about school? What are you studying? I'm, I've just recently changed my major to history. So that's mainly what I'm studying and I'm minoring in English. So what are you reading? Uh, I'm taking a course in the history of Africa, one in history of the history of China. And bef uh, these courses aren't as interesting as the ones I took last semester, which were uh, history of like revolutions in Europe and like hi like history of Europe before right. and after the French Revolution and the history of revolutions just generally in Europe and how it sort of affected and spread. And just like the really like details of how like the social realities of the background in which they take place. And I found that very interesting, even though that was all happening during the October Rebellion. It was very engaging for me, and I didn't see that as like separate from what I was doing. So I decided to change my major to history then. So tell me about uh, Save All Growth. I guess that grew out of your work with Extinction Rebellion. How how did that happen? Why the new why the new movement? Say a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. In some ways, it sprung out of two different places at the same time. In some ways, it sprung out of XR. In other ways, it sprung out of Ferry Creek, the Ferry Creek blockade. So we were mainly inspired by Insulate Britain, 
who are a group of like 100 people in the UK who were demanding the insulation of all housing. And they were all people from Extinction Rebellion. But the reason for that was a, a separate campaign was, if you've seen the banners, it's very straightforward, it's Insulate Britain. And everyone knows about it and everyone has to say the demand whenever they have to talk about the group. So the name of the demand is in the name of the organization. So that was the main reason was that if we were doing this as an XR campaign, people would just dismiss it as some, something else that XR is doing. But if it's stable growth and people just have to be like, stable growth did X. So it's like they're saying our demand, which is what we want. So nobody, I guess, can say, yeah. what are you out here for? Exactly. And so it's like, in some ways, it's a marketing thing. It's like the same banner, just one banner, no signs. One banner that says save old growth, same colors everywhere, Nanaimo, Victoria, Vancouver, just to like, yeah, for name recognition for the demand. Uh, and the other reason is just to have some functional independence like the Freedom Riders did, which is like, because we did this after the October Rebellion and a lot of the people must have been burnt out. So we wanted to respect that and we wanted to just create a space for people who wanted to keep escalating for the next little while. So you're blocking highways now, right? Yeah, and like even then we've seen it's been tricky to get media attention, but like the only reason we've gotten ended up getting more media attention than we did with the October Rebellion uh, because we've been blocking highways and that's really what we have to do now. Okay, so here's something. Most people haven't been involved in a highway block. Logistically, how do you do it? How do you get on a highway and get people to stop? We were like, we, there's three tactics that we're in lucky in some ways because uh, Insular Britain has done this. So we had their example. So we were able to talk to people in the UK of like how they did it. And they basically had three tactics. One was go walking on the hard shoulders of the highway until the highway patrol got really nervous and ended up like slowing down traffic and then people got in the front. Okay, so wait a minute. The police stopped the traffic for you? Well, uh, ultimately, yeah. Okay, maybe we'll talk a little bit about how you're feeling uh, about prison. Yeah, I've, yeah I've, I was initially like, I kn I've always known ever since I first got arrested that ultimately I want to go to prison because I want to see how how it's like to be in prison um and i think if i go to prison and i come out it's going to provide a lot of credibility if i can tell people how it was like and i can give people some facts of like i've been arrested 10 times i've been to prison i'm fine like it's not a big deal and if it is difficult i can tell people it's difficult and it's still important uh yeah, so like, I've read a lot of testimonials that were written by people who went to prison. There's like a long compilation that was made by actually one person who's going to prison with me of like Earl and others who've been to prison for this kind of stuff. And they've written quite a lot about the, the, uh, the daily routine, uh, like in Vancouver, uh, in the North Fraser pretrial and other places, uh, how it's like from like in the morning to, to until night. Okay, so what happens? Uh, tell me what you learned. Yeah, so there's many times during the day uh, that you're let out of your cell. My understanding is that there's a television in the, in the cell. You get TV in the cell? Yeah, apparently, yeah. And, and apparently the food, I'm told, is really bad. Yeah, I'm sure. Like a high school cafeteria. Exactly, yeah. And, and uh, you're let out quite a bit uh, from your cell, so you, there's a lot of the time you can just walk around. 
And during COVID, often people don't have cellmates and they don't get visits. So it's a bit, in that sense, it's a bit different now. If you walk around, so what is there to do? You will, you can volunteer for tasks too. Uh, so you can volunteer to like clean the dishes or just stuff like that. You can, it's one person who's going to prison with me has volunteered to teach French in prison potentially. Uh, so I may come out of prison being better at French. Uh, yeah, so I feel like mostly I'll be trying to, I'll, I'll, tr I'll make a list of the things I can, because I, I'm, the main thing I'm worried about is not the prison itself, but that I won't be productive while, while, I'm, while I'm in prison. I can't be helpful to the movement. I don't know, some of the best writing that I've read has is, is been produced in prison. A lot of people have been very productive in prison. I'm sure you'll find a lot of things to do. Yeah, that's my goal is for over the next five days, I have to just make a list of stuff to do in prison. And yeah, just so that I can come out and it's like, yeah, it can be helpful for our second iteration when we go on the... Are our prisons violent? Not, not definitely not the one that we'll be sent to. Not at all. Not from what I've heard. They can, be, like some prison guards can be unpleasant and there can be just this general unpleasantness, but they're not at all violent from what I've heard. Yeah. Okay, well then... That might be okay. I did read uh, Rita Wong's piece on prison. She was in for, what, 12 days, or something like that, for, for blocking Trans Mountain. And uh, she said it, you know, it was hard, but it wasn't horrifying. You know, she worked in the garden and she did some yoga, met some friends. She did say that, you know, most people seem to be in prison because they're poor. Yeah, yeah. Well, because the bill itself. Well, a lot of people are put in prison just because they're on remand. So, like, in, in other words, before they've been proven guilty. So a few people for stable growth recently were thrown in prison for, like, two days almost uh, because they were breaking some of their conditions. And for one of them, like, someone had to pay $1,000 to get them out. Now, most people, pro like, a lot of people would probably not be able to afford that. So, in other words, if we hadn't done that, then they would have been in prison for potentially months. Yeah, and anybody who can afford to give $1,000 can afford to give $1,000 and then, you know, leave town. You know, it's not like a million dollars. You can, you can afford to skip bail. So it just seems like it's a separator of economic class, really, more than anything else. It, it, it is like, in, it's, to me, it's a bit like legalized corruption. It's like you can, you can pay your way out. Yeah, yeah. So you talk a lot about... Um, the fact that we're dealing with a corrupt government. So do you want to say a little bit about that? Well, I, I, would, I would go a lot further. I think, I think we're dealing with a treasonous government because treason is this concept that people sort of limit to individuals and something that the government uses against people. But all revolutions throughout history have been successful by using the opposition's language against them. So the concept of treason against the government itself. So like with the French Revolution, it was the king who was guilty of treason. So in other words, they were flipping the whole thing on, on its head. They were like, it's not just the king who can uh, accuse others of treason. The king is responsible to the French state. He can't just go around doing whatever he wants. And he's guilty of treason. The same with the English Revolution. The king can't just do whatever he wants. You have a social contract. The king it's himself can be guilty of treason against the people. So the thing to know here, and like I would argue that there's some legal basis for it too, 
is that the government is simply occupying a space that is off the state and the state is separate from the government and the government is made up of individuals who can be guilty of treason against the state and the government can be treasonous towards the state. And what the governments are doing right now is they're destroying the country, they're destroying the state and the people. How? Well, because we've locked in two degrees increase in global average temperatures, which is going to lead to very likely billions of people, a billion people on the move globally. And they'll want to come to Canada, a lot of people will want to come to Canada. And that will lead to societal collapse because the, one billion people on the move means war and chaos and starvation and mass slaughter. So that's what the Canadian government and other governments around the world have locked in. So they're absolutely committing treason against the public. Okay, so what do you see? Are, are, the, are our politicians just uh, bowing to the corporations? Are they in, in the pockets of the corporations? What, uh, so let, let's say, you know, our, our prime minister, let's say Trudeau just wakes up tomorrow and decides he's going he's, he's to do something. He's, he's going to commit to this. So what do you see happening? Well, they, they've got the monopoly of violence and they can basically do what people did, what the governments did in the Second World War in some cases, where uh, with the United States, uh, Roosevelt went to the car manufacturers and uh, basically like his pals and the richest people in the country and said, we need you guys to pay an insane amount of tax and we need you guys to do X, Y, and Z. And half of them said no, half of them said yes, and he just needed half of them. And they did what they asked them to do. Like, as we know, like factories that were producing cars were producing uh, tanks in a matter of weeks. So that's the power that the government has, is that they can go to the corporation and ask them to tell them to do stuff. Okay, so you think Trudeau can wake up tomorrow, I mean, I guess, assuming Trudeau has power, you think he can wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to deal, deal with this. Uh, I'm going to get this done. Do you think that the government in this country has enough power to get this done? Well, I think it's all a matter of political will. And it's, they do have the power to because they control the military and they control the police. And the corporations don't have that. Uh, so, like, and if they are in the pockets of corporations, it's because of their, willing, their ideological belief that that's the right thing to do. So it's like this neoliberal belief that governments have often that we should give more power to corporations, but the governments could just as easily decide, no, it's the other way around. Uh, it, the reason why they don't is because they don't have the political will, and the reason why they don't have the political will is because there isn't public pressure, and public pressure is our job. Okay, I guess we'll, you know, we'll wrap it up, but I, I, I'd really like to let you know how much I respect what you're doing, and... You know, I've known you for probably just a little over six months now, and, you know, you have really changed, helped me to change the way that I see, you know, the violence of the state and the, and the system and what we need to do. You know, the, the system is so... It's designed to be so complicated, unnecessarily complicated, that... You know, people fear it, and 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 they try to avoid it, and and then become complicit in, you know, the the destruction of our of our children's future. So maybe it's that you know you you you've really helped to to lift that fear. You know, once you once you no longer fear, you can put you can arrest me, you can put me in jail. You know what? 
above and beyond that. There's, you know, we don't publicly hang people in Canada. So, you know, I just, I, I really want to let you know um, how much I value the work that you've been doing. And, uh, yeah. So thank you. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you want to say before, uh, before we end? No, uh, yeah, I, w I would just say, like, you know, Sir David King, the former chief scientific advisor to the British government, has said we've got three to four years left. So, like, you know, there's nothing, once you think about it that way, it's like, it's, it's like whatever we have, I, I'm willing to sign up for whatever I have to do. It's like three to four years, and if we get things done within that time, then we can go back, not to the same life we've had over the past, like, f f 100 years, but we can go back to relative stability if we get things done within the next yeah couple of years right and we can't wait you know three to four years to do it we have to do it in the next you know year to have time right yeah okay thanks zane yeah thanks a lot bye bye